through the person of the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, we're so glad that you're here. Holy Spirit, we pray, bring conviction into our lives. Bring encouragement into our lives. Speak what we need to hear. Not necessarily what we want to hear, but what we need to hear. Holy Spirit, we welcome you to come and do whatever you want to do. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, band, for leading us. Please be seated. It's great to see you. This is week three in the Light and Life Centre. Do you like it? Yeah. Brilliant. Excellent. Nice to have a bit of enthusiasm. Fantastic. It's been wonderful to hear what some of you feel about this place. Things like, it feels like home. That's one of the things that's been said. Uh, others have said there's a real sense of quality about the place. Uh, a spacious, light, airy feel to it. Uh, in fact, I've never heard anything negative about it. So that's good. So don't tell me anything negative. Because <laughs> I don't want to know. <laughs> No, seriously, uh, it's been great to hear. My, my favourite is a young boy of about nine who lives in the flats up here, uh, non-churched, came up the stairs when we were building, and he stood at the top of those stairs, and he looked around, and he said, I like this building. I thought, that'll do for me. A boy who's a non-Christian, who doesn't know God, something about this place that is attractive to him. And that's brilliant, isn't it? We want those who don't know the Lord to come into this place and feel that it's a welcoming space. But it's a tool, isn't it? It's nothing more than a tool, is it? It's a vehicle. And why are we here? Well, we're going to return to our vision statement, our mission statement, and we'll keep on with this until it's so imprinted in your brain that if somebody says to you, you know, why are you doing children's church? Why are you in the car park directing people to the church? Why are you doing whatever it is in this church? You can say, it's to see God's love transform lives as we follow him. That's why we're doing it. And that's our passion. So let's say this a couple of times together, shall we? To see God's love transform lives as we follow him. To see God's love transform lives as we follow him. Last week, Pete looked at uh, Isaiah 61, and I'm just going to read that again because it's a, it's a passage that really homes in on all of that. It's a passage from which God has spoken to us. So Isaiah uh, 61, just to refresh our memories, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because he's anointed me to preach good news to the poor he has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom to the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness a planting of the Lord for the display 
of his splendor. Two weeks ago, we looked at to see God's love transformed lives. We saw something of what it means to gaze on the holy love of God and be transformed. At the end of that, Kieran shared testimony, personal story of God transforming his life. Being set free from the, from the prison of addiction to alcohol. What a wonderful release. It was brilliant to hear that testimony, wasn't it? And Laura shared a picture. Laura shared this picture of this roof opening up and a huge net being lowered down in this place full of fish. And following that, the words, I will make you fishers of men. Don Double was present that day, and, and he felt God impress upon him really strongly, and he said he doesn't often have this. The sense of the first batch of fish would be 153 big fish. And uh, I said to him, what does he mean by big fish? Do you mean adults? What do you mean? What is this big fish? And he said, no. He said, I believe that they will be quality conversions. That they will be clear, comprehensive conversions. And so I want to say to us as a church, and if you're a guest, we love you and you're welcome. And obviously this doesn't apply to you. But those of us who are regular here, I want us to pray for that first batch. Believe God for 153 big fish to come into this place. That they would experience the awesome love of God and that their lives would be transformed as they see God. I shared with you at the end of that service as well that I felt God say to me that as we moved into the building, it would be moving into a land of milk and honey. That was a description that God gave to his people when they were in slavery in Egypt, relating to the land that he was going to lead them into with Moses. I reflected on that at Duport Beach on Monday this week, uh, that's just gone, and, and my mind went to Joshua, Moses' successor, who led them into the promised land. And before they took hold of the promised land, God led Joshua in a very clear way of instructing the people. And I want to read that verse to you. The verse came very clearly to me. It's Joshua 3, verse 5. Joshua told the people, Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do amazing things among you. Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do amazing things among you. And the Lord did amazing things, didn't he? He opened up the Red Sea the next day, and they walked across on dry land. Then they went in and they took city after city after city. God didn't reveal all the strategy at that moment. He didn't say, this is the strategy. He said, consecrate yourselves to the Lord. If, if you're a guest, then you're off the hook. Because this directive is for those who follow God. But I believe God would give that same directive to us as a church. Consecrate yourselves. Because I am going to do amazing things in this place. 
We could spend a lot of time looking at the word consecration. I'm not going to do that. But I do just want to read from one of my old theology books. Very rarely do I read from one of my old theology books in terms of church. But this is from C.W. Ruth, talking about what consecration includes. And this is what I said. All we have and all we expect to have. All we are and all we hope to be. All we know and all we do not know. With a promise of an eternal yes to all the will of God for all the future. It is not consecration to a work or consecration to a certain calling, but consecration to God. It is not simply a desire to consecrate or a willingness to consecrate, but the unconditional signing of the deed of all to God for time and eternity. Pretty comprehensive, isn't it? Consecration is saying, God, you can have all of me. God, you can have all of me. All my plans, all my ambitions, all my intellect. The hymn writer wrote the song, didn't they? Take my life and let it be. Consecrated Lord to thee. Take my lips, take my intellect, take my will, take my heart, take my finance. The end of that song, there's nothing left. At the end of that song, everything has been handed over to God. That's consecration. See, Joshua painted a picture of the great future ahead of them. But that great future was all about God. God had promised to give them this awesome land flowing with milk and honey. God was the only one who could deliver that land. So they needed God. Without God, they were stuffed. <laughs> Simple as that. Without God, they were not going to possess all the good things that God had promised them. They needed to rely on God or they would never see the amazing promises realized. The previous generation spent 40 years missing out on these amazing things because they did not trust God. I believe God would say to you and to me, this is a message as much to me as it is to you, consecrate yourselves to me and I will do amazing things in this place, we will see men and women, boys and girls, transformed through the love of God as we follow him. We've got to follow him. We must follow him. The first reaction could be, I'm okay. <laughs> I'm okay. I'm fine. I, I, I don't need that. I, I'm, I'm just fine as, as I am with my relationship with God as it is. And I just want to say, please don't ignore the warning lights. I've got a little slide coming up on the PowerPoint. Don't ignore the warning lights. When I was 18, uh, my brother Peter, my dad and myself worked on the farm. 
We had three cars. Now, we had an Austin Maxi and a Mini 1000 that were basically decent cars. Not Rolls Royce or anything, but they were very reliable, reasonably new cars. And then we had this old beaten up Mini pickup. And being the youngest, I was the uh, lowest in the pecking order. So if Dad wanted the car and Peter wanted a car, then I got left with a beaten up mini pickup. Now you can say, ah. Oh. <laughs> On one such occasion, it was a very cold night. It was a very wet night. It was a very windy night. I was traveling to see my girlfriend, and, and the warning lights on the dashboard were not really on my radar, I'm afraid. Uh, I was thinking about where I was going, and I was thinking about the horrendous driving conditions, and I didn't even look at the dashboard. I got on the motorway junction near Lancaster on the M6, and I'd got a mile, and after about a mile, there was steam just oozing out of the bonnet, and the power was just dying. The car was just dying. To cut a long story short, I had blown the cylinder head gasket. The car was sick. Very, very sick. I had three hours of absolute misery before I managed to get home. If only I had been watching the warning light. I would not have broken down. Got three clips, one after the other, all to do with heeding the warning lights or seeing the signs. Uh, they're only short ones, so hopefully you'll enjoy it. <laughs> the Americans are out to do it all. I believe today is a day when God would just say, check the warning lights. See how we are doing in following him. I think Peter, in his first letter, really highlights what it is to follow Christ. I think there's so much in here which is really relevant to us and can kind of help show why and how we should measure ourselves, as it were, in terms of following the Lord. So I'm going to read a few verses from that first letter that Peter writes. I'm going to read chapter 1, verses 13 to 19 to start with. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Be self-controlled. Set your hope fully on the grace to be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. Since you call on a father who judges each man's work impartially, Live your lives as strangers here in reverend fear. 
For we know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver and gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. Chapter 2, 24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, so that he that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. By his runes you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray. But now you have returned to the shepherd. Chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourself also with the same attitude. Because he who suffered in his body is done with sin. Verse 8 of chapter 4. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each one should use whatever gift he has received to serve others, faithfully administering God's grace in its various forms. To follow God means that we become like him. That's his desire for us. And Peter emphasizes in his first letter two things. He emphasizes the holiness and he elevates love. Emphasis on holiness and he elevates love. In chapter 1, verse 15, he says, Just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. And then in chapter 4, verse 8, Above all, love each other deeply, because love covers over a multitude of sins. I believe these two things, holiness and love, are key warning lights in our lives. If we have become tolerant of sin, and so become unholy, that should be a major warning light this morning. There's sin in your life and you know it. There's a warning light going off right now. If we've stopped loving people and so become unloving, then there's a major warning light going off in your heart right now. Living holiness is perfect love. It is impossible to separate these two things. They are totally related to each other. Living holiness is perfect love. You see, if I truly love my wife, I will be holy in my relationship with other women. To commit the sin of adultery is to be unloving towards our spouse. If I truly love my brother, I will not gossip behind his back. 
I will not bear false testimony against him. To commit the sin of gossip and lies is unloving to my brother. We're going to concentrate on holiness rather than love. We've had a lot of teaching about love over many weeks in our church. I want to concentrate on holiness today. You know, it's so easy to excuse sin, isn't it? Isn't it? It is so easy to excuse sin. I've heard people say, I couldn't help having an affair. I couldn't help falling in love. I couldn't help it. See, the reality is we make a choice to sin or not to sin. That is the brutal truth. Temptation can be very, 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 very strong, but it is not irresistible. I'm sure that many of you are familiar with the verse in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13, that says, No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can stand under it. I've already said that on Monday I went to Duporth to spend time with God. And on the way back, I got to the headland between Duporth and Porthpian. And I could see in front of me a man and a woman and their two dogs. And as I started to get closer, the two dogs saw me and they ran full pelt towards me. Now, one was quite a large dog, maybe a box across. I couldn't really tell. It was coming that fast. And, and the other was a little terrier-type dog. And uh, they were heading for me. And they ran right up to me. They ran all around me. Now, I didn't know whether they were friendly or whether they were ferocious. I had no idea. So my tactic was, don't engage the dogs. My tactic was, just keep walking. Ignore them. That's what I did, and they dispersed. Always going well. And then the chap said to me, uh, engaged me in conversation, he said, is the path muddy? So being a friendly chap, that I am, I stopped. And I started to have a conversation with this man. The moment I stopped and engaged in conversation, one of these dogs with his absolutely dirty, wet paws (laughs) jumped up at me and planted them on my thighs. The owner of the dog didn't bat an eyelid. They weren't his thighs. And I I walked away and I I started to reflect on how this had happened to me. The moment I did that, it was almost like God gave me a spiritual lesson. There was nothing to do with what had just happened. But a spiritual lesson about sin, about temptation. You see, none of us can stop temptation running up to us. We can't. None of us can stop temptation running all around us. Because it does. But we need to keep walking with God. 
the moment we stop and engage, the moment we start to have a conversation with temptation, which is ultimately with the devil, we've had it. We will end up with a huge, whacking, great, big stain on our lives. We didn't ask for the temptation. We didn't want the temptation. But the bottom line is we have a choice. We have a choice. We can keep walking with God in the light, in the path of purity, or we can stop and engage with Satan and be stained with sin. In effect, it is a choice between right and wrong. Satan's so good at dressing up wrong to look sort of okay. You know, God's conviction is always clear and direct. We're left in no doubt what we need to put right. Sometimes Satan brings condemnation, and I've experienced this where he's given me this sort of general woolly feeling that I am not good enough as a Christian, and you start wondering what it is that you've done wrong, and you don't know what it is, and you've got this general woolly idea, and you, you really can't nail it down. That is not God. God never does that. God never makes you feel you're not good enough as a Christian, or that you're useless, or that call yourself a Christian, how could you be a Christian? You're not good enough. Well, see, Satan always twists the truth, because none of us are good enough to be a Christian. It's nothing to do with how good we are at all. That's irrelevant. I'm accepted because of Jesus Christ and his sacrifice. And that alone, nothing to do with anything else. Satan twists the truth. We have an example of God's conviction. When it's God at work, not the devil. In Isaiah chapter 6, it's a very familiar passage but I, I love this passage. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphs, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered with their feet, and with two they were flying, and they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphs flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongues from the altar. With it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Isaiah had this revelation of Almighty God. And as he had this revelation, the thing that struck him was how holy God is holy, holy, holy. How separate from us, how superior 
to us. You know, God is not just the best one of us. He's not. No, he's completely on a different level. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so are his ways compared with our ways. Isaiah didn't say, I saw the Lord alongside me as my best mate. No, he said, I saw the Lord high and lifted up, holy. When he saw God, he was convicted of what he'd been saying with his mouth. And he realized he'd been saying things that he should not have said. He was convicted. It wasn't false guilt, it was true guilt. You know, the wonderful thing is, when he confessed it, instantly God took away his guilt. Instantly God brought forgiveness. But he had to confess it. He had to acknowledge his sin. He didn't sweep it under the carpet. He had a revelation of God. And he came and confessed his sin. The moment we confess sin, God removes the guilt. And it's paid for. Rick Joyner said this, It is wisdom to behold the kindness and the severity of God. It is wisdom to love him and fear him. The cross is the place where the kindness and severity of God is most graphically displayed. To put it another way, where the holiness and the love of God is really demonstrated. It is an awesome place. Our holy God really does hate sin. He doesn't just dislike it. It's not something that he preferred wasn't around. He absolutely hates it. And he had to deal with it. And the penalty for our sin was a death sentence. And at the cross, the anger of God against sin was placed on Jesus Christ. He bore that death sentence for sin. Paid in full. Holiness. But what love. What love. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Amazing love. Unconditional, undeserved, awesome love. 